you, Aaron. Good morning. Lament. I was uh, not meant to be an imperative. I just bring up the word for consideration. Lament is not a word we consider very often, is it, church? I hadn't considered it, considered it much until quite recently. And if you're anything like me, you might not have either. In our culture today, we often associate lament with like moaning or whining or complaining. Several of us here might lament brokenheartedly the fact that in the last couple of days, our teams were knocked out of the World Cup. It's hard. We might moan the fact that our kids don't listen or don't let us sleep in on Saturdays. That's not lament. The Bible deals with lament, though. And biblical lament is nothing like whining. As the Israelites learned in the wilderness, if you remember, ungrateful hearts that complain, that with lack of faith turn to God with moaning and whining and complaining, are not hearts, are not the hearts that God is looking for. Lamentation, on the other hand, is welcomed by God. God invites his people to lament. Our text for this morning is Psalm 28. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 28? If you open your Bibles to the middle, you should be in the book of Psalms. And then you just have to look for the number 28, the big number 28. Chapter 28 of the book of Psalms. But if we just look at this book, the book of Psalms, the Hebrew name for this book, I don't know where the word Psalm comes from. I actually should have looked that up, and I didn't, sorry. But the Hebrew name for the book of Psalms is, is the plural noun, praises. And yet this book, one-third of this book is lament. Up to 70% of the 150 psalms in this book have some element of lament in them. It's like God, the praises of God's people and the lamentation of God's people are intertwined. And that's the fact through Scripture. Our world is broken. Evil and injustice and suffering have touched and tainted all of our lives. And so how are God's people to respond to this suffering, to this evil, to the injustice we see around us? Lament. A lament, church, is an appeal to God based on confidence in His character. See that again. A lament is an appeal to God, a crying out, a calling out to God in prayer, appealing to Him based on our confidence in who He says He is and who we know Him to be. An appeal to God based on confidence in His character. And so the first thing this assumes is that there is a God. We're not venting, speaking words into the air. But what we see from the beginning to the end of Scripture, what we see in our lives by God's hand in a, on us, is that there is a God. That when we pray, He hears, He listens, and He cares. The next thing this assumes, this, this definition, is that there is a relationship between God and His people. Let's go back to that 
kids not allowing us to sleep on Saturday morning. Have you ever had the experience of a kid barging into your room on a Saturday morning when your blinds were down, the only day in the week that you can sleep in, and the kid comes up to you and goes, Mom, Dad, I am so hungry. Feed me. I'm starving. I might die. Maybe it's just our kids. I don't know. (laughs) But the reason that happens is that there's a relationship between you. There's this trust. There's this expectation that when they cry out, you will answer. Hopefully, they don't do that to the neighbors. Hopefully. (laughs) But people have gone into orphanages in countries where the care is not so great And it's been eerie walking down silent aisles, kids sitting there because they've learned that crying is going to get them nothing, that no one's going to come and help them when they cry out. Lament assumes a God who cares, a God who watches out for his people, a God who describes describes himself in Scripture as our Father, as someone who loves us, who binds himself to us in covenant. It assumes confidence in the love of a caregiver. But if you think about it, if you look around at the world around us, there's, there's a bit of a paradox that happens here. Because scripture tells us that there is a sovereign God, which means he's in charge of everything. Nothing happens apart from his allowing it to happen. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. But he's also loving. He loves and cares for his people. But now take that knowledge and look at the world around. God's people suffer. Terrible evil happens to us. Maybe this week things have happened to you that have shaken you. Pain has hit your life, maybe. Most likely it has in the last year. Most certainly it has in the last few years. And this doesn't compute, does it? If God is loving and if God is caring and if if God is all-powerful and God is in control, why does he allow horrible things to happen to his children? Why does he allow lying and deceiving? Why does he allow people people to take credit for things they don't deserve, to falsely accuse and take advantage of people? Why does he allow people, evil people, to get away unpunished? We've all tasted rejection and betrayal We've seen our dreams crushed at different times in our lives. We've smelt disease and chronic pain. We've seen sick kids or heard of babies dying, of sudden accidents that changed lives completely, just like that, completely unexpected, and life is never again the same. Is a good God in charge? Is there justice We are little. We have so little in our hands, so little that we can accomplish. But God isn't. The God of the Bible is all-powerful. So where is he in our pain? Where is justice on this world? When the pain of sudden suffering, of evil, of injustice slams into us like a sledgehammer, and when the illusion of control is ripped away from us, and we are left curled up on the ground in pain and in hurt, how do we react? Where do we turn? The Holy Spirit of God who inspired 
and preserved Psalm 28 for us shows us in this chapter of Scripture lessons that are invaluable for God's people to cling to, to build into our lives as we deal, as we live in this world of injustice and suffering. Our big idea this morning, church, is lament and pray for vindication in the midst of evil, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of injustice. Lament and pray for vindication. When we are confused and hurt, when we don't know where to turn, God's word tells us where to turn. God's word invites us to turn to God in lamentation, in prayer for vindication, and for deliverance, for a clearing, for, for God's intervention to right the wrongs that we are in the midst of. Lament and pray for vindication. Let me show you where we see this in Psalm 28. Would you turn with me to Psalm 28 and follow along as I read it, starting at verse 1. To you, O Yahweh. When we see Lord all in caps in Scripture, we know that that's stands in for God's personal covenant name that he has revealed to his people. To you, O Yahweh, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry out to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, don't drag me off with the wicked, with workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord of Yahweh or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be Yahweh, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Yahweh is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. Yahweh is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your, your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. Church, this morning we're going to look at four lessons from Psalm 28. Four things that we see in the heart in the attitude and the words of this psalmist that are invaluable for us as God's people navigating the brokenness, the injustice, the suffering of this world. And the first lesson we see right in verse 1. Look with me at the first part of verse 1. To you, O Yahweh, I call. We all have different ways of dealing with our suffering, don't we? Some of us might try to escape suffering. We throw ourselves into work or busy work. Anything that takes our minds off the situation that is threatening to crush us. We, we sleep excessively when we are stressed. Or we might, we might seek to throw ourselves into movies or games. Anything that distracts us. 
Others of us might, might try to ease the sting of suffering by pursuing pleasure in other places like food or addictions or, or other substances or relationships. Some of us might hope to just get angry and, and try to attack the injustice that we see. We might burn with zeal to right the wrongs that are happening in our lives and the lives of those close to us. And we find as we burn and attack them that we accomplish so little. So often we are frustrated. The psalmist in Psalm 28 faces injustice. He faces evil. He fears for his life. But he doesn't react in any of those ways. To you, Yahweh, I call. See, with those other reactions, we might think we retain some semblance of control. When we escape, we might think we, we are able with our own hands and our own power to shut out the suffering, at least for a little bit. When we distract ourselves or, or seek something that will make us feel better, we, we try to anesthetize ourselves, we try to self-medicate and keep things in our control. We hate to have the illusion of control stripped away from us. But sometimes, oftentimes, God doesn't allow us to escape the situation. He lets us sit in that situation of great discomfort or sometimes even great pain. And for a long time, look at the psalmist's experience, reading again from verse 1. To you, O Yahweh, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. It's another way of talking about death. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. The thing about sitting in pain and discomfort and suffering, this, the thing about sitting with injustice before us and being grieved by it and wanting to do something about it or escape it, is that that pain can become like blinders on a horse. You know those blinders that they put on horses to, to shut out traffic and to shut out distractions, to keep the horse walking straight? Pain can be like blinders to us. It shuts out the rest of the world. It pulls our focus. It causes us to focus on the pain. The pain becomes our world. And we start feeling alone. And we start losing hope. This poor psalmist describes himself as standing on the edge of a precipice with hands lifted up, calling out for deliverance, calling out for rescue, calling out for help, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting and will God answer? Will God come? Have you ever been there? Christian, your good and loving God allows this for the psalmist. And he has allowed this for his people through history. Think of Job. Think of Joseph. Think of Paul. Think of countless examples through history where God has allowed people to sit in pain for prolonged periods of time. Because he desired to work in them and in us when he allows this in our lives. He desires to work in us what we might not see, but he knows that we need. He's taking us to places for our good through this pain that we would never pursue getting to by ourselves because the road is so rough and hurtful. But like surgery, we need this work, whether we realize it or not.
See, we, when we try to distract ourselves and we try to escape what God is trying to do in our lives through pain, we miss out on this redemptive shaping that is, hap- shaping that is happening, on this work that God is doing to mold us into the image of his son, to mold us into the shape that he, as a good and loving father, knows we need to get to. We miss out on those lessons. Until we sit and wrestle with God through the pain, we miss out on what God desires to do for us. It's not fun sitting in that place, but it's good. This wrestling, this honest crying out from seemingly senseless pain and sometimes even confusion, this is lament. This is what God calls us to in our suffering. Let me tell you a story about what may have been one of the greatest moments of grace in my life. It happened around eight, nine years ago. We had a two-year-old at the time, Bella. You know her. She's 10 now. And she was coughing this morning. She's not here. And Bella got sick. Long story short, she was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL. And we were looking at two years of treatment, two years of constant pokes and prods with needles, two years of countless uh, surgeries and procedures done to her little two-year-old body. We were looking at two years of weekly steroids and weekly chemo and bone pain that just wouldn't go away. And that sledgehammer of pain and suffering hit us in the face and had us on the ground curled up in a little ball. We were Lord. My wife Lindsay was nursing Ellie, who was a first who was a newborn at that time. And so in those first few days, I got to spend the night with Bella at, at McMaster, the children's hospital there, while Lindsay drove back and forth to nurse Ellie in the night. And I remember lying, falling asleep in that hospital bed with a two-year-old tucked in my arm and just weeping and crying out to God for grace and mercy, crying out to God for her life crying out to God for the grace to endure this trial faithfully. A week or so after that initial diagnosis, Lindsay came over for a day and I had the opportunity to drive home. We were in Guelph. It was an hour's drive. I had the opportunity to drive home and just go shower. I had showered before in the hospital. But just go shower and and, and have a, a moment at home, pack a bag and come back to the Ronald McDonald house. And I remember just this mixture of grief and pain and anger and confusion swirling around in my soul. And the place where my brain went in in, in that grief and confusion was to start singing this little song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you know that song? It's Lauren's favorite song, right? It's one of my favorite songs too. And as, as I was driving, there was this moment where this punch just hit my heart. And that song changed in my mind to Jesus loves Bella. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I just lost it. I had to pull over from the weeping. And it hit me like it hadn't hit me before. That as much as I love my little two-year-old, 
God loves his two-year-old so much more. As much as I want to care and bring an end to her suffering and pain, God cares for her infinitely more than I ever could. I couldn't remove her from this trial. I couldn't remove the pain from her life. There was so little I could do. But I could love her and I could trust God, a God whose hands are safe, a God who cares for her. And where else could I go? So there's this moment, figuratively, of of lifting up my hands and opening my hands to him and saying to him, Lord, my hands are open. Your hands are good. I, I have nothing that I can do here, but I will trust you. Have your way. I pray for her life, but if you take her, I will trust you. It's this process, this honest wrestling with a father you know loves you, a father you know could take away the pain right there and then, but for a reason that you don't understand, hasn't yet. This process is lament. The lament didn't end in that car ride. There were two years of treatment And then two years after that, she relapsed, and the lament started all over again. But church, I wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be here as a family, apart from that ability, from that opportunity, from that invitation from God to cry out to Him, to wrestle with Him, to cling to Him, even when we don't understand, even when we're railing. And He invites all of us to that. So often we suffer in silence, but that's not what we were designed to do. That's not what God wants of us. He wants us to lament, to cry out to Him. Call out to God is our first point this morning. But we see more than the psalmist just calling out to God in His pain and in His suffering. Look with me at verses 3 to 5. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to the work, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of Yahweh or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build, excuse me, build them up no more. This is Old Testament covenant language. There was covenants made between kings or emperors and and their vassals, local rulers or even smaller kings. And the uh, the covenant implied that the emperor protecting the vassal and the vassal being faithful and true to the emperor. And when that vassal broke covenant, when he was unfaithful, when when he betrayed the trust given to him, this was the language that was used. May, that, may his walls be torn down. May his city be ripped asunder and never again be built up again. We don't know the circumstances for this psalm, but because of this language, many scholars think that the, psalm, the, the, the psalmist David here was, was in a situation where he had made a contract with someone, maybe a covenanted with someone, and he thought they were faithful, but it turns out they were doing evil. And now he was implicated because of his association, because of his binding himself to them. And he felt he might be dragged away with these wicked men. And it was unfair. And it was unjust. And he was angry. Do you see the anger in these verses? 
Give to them according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. These faithful, faithless men, workers of evil who speak peace on the one side and have evil in their hearts. This world is filled with injustice. As God's people, it's okay for us to respond with anger. Our second point this morning, church, is in the face of evil, in the face of injustice. Be angry. Be angry. We often think anger is this totally negative attitude, something always to be avoided. Holy people are serene, right? Holy people are calm. They're always composed. They're always peaceful. Except that a lot of people, a lot of holy, holy people don't meet that mold. Starting with Jesus. When Jesus saw injustice being done at the temple, when he saw the Gentiles being uh, prevented from worship, and God's house being turned into a house of sale, worship becoming about profit, he was furious. In John chapter 11, when Jesus Jesus' friend Lazarus dies and he goes to the, to the gravesite and, and Lazarus' sisters whom Jesus loves are weeping and wondering why Jesus didn't get there earlier. The ESV tells us he was deeply troubled in heart. That's a weird verb that John uses. If you look at your footnote, it says, it, it, this might read, he was indignant. The verb John uses actually means he sternly, is to basically rebuke someone sternly, to speak harshly to someone. But Jesus was doing this, he says to himself, there was this anger at the injustice, at the suffering of the people that he loved. What scripture tells us, church, is that God loves us. He loves us so much that he created a beautiful, perfect world for us to thrive in, and enjoy, but sin has corrupted this world, sin has polluted, sin has destroyed, is destroying, has ruined God's perfect world. And today, injustice and evil are everywhere. Suffering touches every life because of Adam's sin, and my sin, and your sin. And anger is an emotion created by God to help us respond to evil and injustice. Anger is the natural emotion that arises in us when we see that things are not how they should be. We must disapprove of evil. We must disapprove of wrong. This is how Jesus responded. This is how God, who is holy, responds to sin. But a problem arises from the fact that we ourselves are so tainted by sin. Sin is in the fabric of our being. Sin makes us corrupt and selfish. And far too often, anger, our anger, becomes self-centered and selfish rather than focused on God and His holiness. Our anger becomes often about us It arises when we are slighted, when we are crossed, when we don't think we are treated fairly. And so we rant and rail and we try to get even. We want justice for ourselves. Meanwhile, we see and hear great injustice around the world and we shut it out because our lives and our hearts are focused on us. 
it's difficult for us to get righteous anger right like Jesus did. It's difficult for us, like Paul urges us in Ephesians 4, to be angry and not sin. And so look at what the psalmist does here in Psalm 28. He calls out to God in his anger. He calls out to God for justice. He prays for vindication. He doesn't take matters into his own hands and goes attack the people who wronged him. In the midst of his anger, in the midst of this injustice and the suffering, he calls out to God. He puts the situation in God's hands and he lets God deal with the wicked and the evil. And that is how you and I should deal with anger. We should use it as fuel for prayer. We should cry out to God, the one who actually can change the circumstances in perfect wisdom, with perfect might, where we lack both. The one who can actually redeem the circumstances and bring good out of wickedness. Be angry, church. Be angry at evil. Be angry at wickedness. Be angry at injustice. But use that anger as fuel for prayer. Be angry is our second point from Psalm 28. Call out to the one who can right all wrongs. And so we see the psalmist in the face of injustice call out to God as his recourse. We see him be angry and use that anger righteously. And our third point this morning, and we see this in verses 6 and 7, we see the psalmist praise we see the psalmist offer up the sacrifice of praise, and this is what I call you to. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, when you see injustice, when sometimes your heart may feel the furthest from praise, praise might be the last thing you want to do. Praise is good for us in those times, as always. It might come like a sacrifice. It might cost. But in the midst of injustice and pain, offer up the sacrifice of praise. Do you see that in verses 6 and 7? Look with me at, uh, at our text, verses 6 and 7. Blessed be Yahweh, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Yahweh is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Now the psalmist is still in the thick of things. Just a couple of lines back, he's begging God to hear him and to rescue him. He's asking God if, God, if, if, if he's silent, if he, if he can't hear him. The situation isn't resolved yet. And so often, when the sledgehammer of pain hits us, that's what it feels like, doesn't it? Like God is silent, like God can't see, like God has abandoned us, like we are all alone in our pain and in our suffering. We respond with our hearts, and it hurts and that's normal, and that's human. But as we lament, as we wrestle with God in the midst of the suffering, we have to engage our brains in our lamentation. We have to hold on to what is true, even when our hearts are smarting, are suffering, are hurting from the pain. Praise helps shepherd our hearts through seasons of pain. Let me say that again. Praise helps shepherd our heart through seasons of pain and suffering and confusion. 
this psalmist preemptively praises God because he knows even though he doesn't feel like it, even though he feels alone and abandoned, he knows that God is a God who cares, who answers prayer, who rescues his people. He knows his rescue will come, his vindication will come from Yahweh. And so he praises him even though he doesn't see the answer to, to the prayer yet. We need to do the same. Last week we looked at Psalm 27 and we were looking at fear. The psalmist struggles with fear that is overwhelming in Psalm 27. And in our discussion, in our small group, we were talking about this. And one of the themes that came out was that when we worship, as the psalmist in Psalm 27 had called us to worship in the midst of fear, it takes our eyes off the object of fear that is so fearful, that seems so horrible, and it focuses our eyes on a God who is bigger. See, fear, like pain, can put those blinders on us. It, it tends to become the focus of our attention and the focus of our lives. It, it tends to cause us to forget the rest of the world. But praise removes those blinders and helps us see that the fear is not all-consuming, that the pain is not all-consuming, that far bigger is God who is over all. Church scripture calls us to fight in times of crisis, in times of suffering, by turning our eyes on Jesus as we just sang. Fear and suffering, injustice and pain are things of this earth. And like all other things of this earth, they grow dim when our eyes are focused on Jesus. And few ways of focusing our eyes on Jesus are as effective as praise for who he is, for what he has done, and for what he is doing, even in the midst of our suffering. When, when Bella was sick eight or nine years ago, it's going to be nine years and three months, Lindsay found these <laughs> CDs. They were called Scripture Lullabies. They were at the back of your bulletin. There was a bunch of resources there if you want to take a look at them that were really helpful to us. These CDs are basically just scripture set to music, Bible verses set to music in like a lullaby-ish, soothing uh, melody. And we started playing them 24-7 in the hospital room, in the Ronald McDonald house. Every night we would fall asleep to scripture sing, being sung in the background. Every morning we would wake up to scripture being sung in the background. We ate our meals to scripture being sung. And, and we had conversations and we wept to scripture being sung. And they were so helpful. They helped fix our eyes on what is true when fear and hurt and confusion threatened to overwhelm. They fixed our eyes on what is absolutely, objectively true. God is good and God is working. Praise is something that we need more than most things in seasons of suffering. So in your grief, Christian, offer up the sacrifice of praise. Keep your eyes fixed on a good God who loves you and who is working even through suffering for your good. Keep your eyes fixed on truth. As our last point this morning, we see this in verses 8 
and 9. Would you turn with me? Look with me to verses 8 and 9. We see the psalmist setting his hope on Yahweh. And this is our fourth point. Set your hope on Yahweh. Verse 8 reads, Yahweh is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. The psalmist here in ancient Israel is living among people. All the nations around them are people who worship idols, who literally carve out idols of wood and stone and say, this is God, and then carry them around to processions and carry them to war for luck and carry them to festivals for blessing and fertility. But Yahweh is fundamentally different. He's not a God who needs to be carried around by his people. He is a God from the beginning of Scripture to the end, carries his people, who leads them like a shepherd, who leads them to good pastures. We see God right from the beginning when sin entered his perfect world and started distorting it and ruining it. When sin severed mankind's relationship with God, God starts working for our redemption. He doesn't abandon us to our sin, even as he burns with anger at what sin is doing to us. Even as he grieves to be rejected by creatures he loves, he sets in plan, uh, he sets in motion a plan of redemption for mankind. And in his mercy, he begins calling a people to himself, a people who are broken and sinful, just like the rest of mankind, but who he calls by faith out of the world to follow him and be his people. He rescues this people, his people, over and over again. He delivers them from his enemies. He gives them his statutes and his rules as a way of blessing them, as a way of showing them how blessed they'll be when they walk with him, when this relationship is restored, and as a way of showing the rest of the world as well the blessing of walking with the living God. But his people reject him over and over again. And he sends warnings. And he, sends, he calls them back. He tries to woo them back and win their hearts. But their hearts are selfish and self-centered and turn away from him again and again. But he knows this. And his plan all along is to bring about new hearts, a new spirit to transform his people from the inside out. And so the climax of God's plan of redemption, where the riches of his grace are made manifest, is when God himself puts on human flesh. He takes on a human body and comes to earth to live the sinless, perfect life that he calls you and I to live, and we cannot. The fullness of God's grace shines when after having lived that perfect life in the greatest act of injustice in the history of the world, God the Father sends His only Son and allows His only Son, innocent, pure, and perfect, to be betrayed and taken advantage of, to be wrongfully accused and mistreated, to be rejected and condemned to the pit for you and for me. 
the fullness of God's grace shines, church, when God the Son, out of his steadfast love for us, does not spare his own life, but lays it down on the cross in your place and in my place to satisfy the needs of justice that demands that all sinners die. He took on that death for us. And so we who are God's people today, who by faith come to him, come to Christ and follow him, are now free from condemnation. We are free from the fear of death. We know that just as death had no power over Jesus, it will have no power to keep us. Yahweh, who is the strength and saving refuge of his anointed, the Christ, is our strength and saving refuge also. The work that was worked for us on our behalf on the cross assures us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and shepherded forever. But there is even more to come. What scripture also shows us is that Jesus is coming back soon. And when he does, all injustice, all evil, every tear and every wrong will be righted. Evil will be done away with. And he will deal definitively with all injustice. Even now, in the midst of this broken world, he shepherds his people to this glorious green pasture of complete restoration to the goodness that he intended for us. The psalmist in Psalm 28, 28 cries out against injustice. Against, he cries for vindication against two-faced people who lie, people who work iniquity, who harbor evil in their hearts, who deserve the justice that's coming to them. The problem, though, is that this describes me. And according to Scripture, this describes you. This describes all of us before the perfect example, the perfect spotless model that Christ lived. All of us are two-faced sinners who harbor evil in our heart. Injustice flows out of us to affect those around us, starting with those closest to us. So what do we do when God who is just and holy, when Christ who comes to redeem and restore and do away with all injustice, when he comes back, and holds us to account, where do we stand? The Bible says there are only two places to stand. We either stand by ourselves and get swept away, dragged away with the wicked to get what we deserve. And justice is met that way. Or we turn to Christ and we stand in Him. And He gets the justice that we deserve. And he becomes our saving refuge and our strength. And instead of justice, we get the grace that he longs to pour out on all of us. One way or the other, justice will be met. But only one way leads to hope. If you have not yet turned to Jesus, I urge you, turn to Christ there is no hope apart from him. God created us for wholeness. He created us for shalom. He created us to thrive in the perfect world that he built. 
which is why we long for justice, which is why our souls can see how wrong this world is. We were created for a different world, but sin has ruined this world. And yet God's promise and God's working ensures that he is in the pro- ensures us that he is in the process of destroying sin, of dealing with sin forever, and restoring his people to the conditions, to the beautiful world that he created us for. Yet until he does, until he returns, we live in this world ravaged by sin, a world where evil and injustice, where suffering are, is incessant and threatens to overwhelm us. So how do God's holy people respond? Psalm 28 invites us to call on God in our pain and desperation. Psalm 28 invites us to be angry, but to use our anger righteously in dealing with injustice and calling on God for vindication. Psalm 28 reminds us to praise, to fix our eyes on the good God who loves us, even in the midst of what seems completely evil. And Psalm 28 reminds us to set our hope not in this world where injustice will continue to prevail, but on what God has done and on what God is doing and on what God will do on behalf of his people. Psalm 28 calls us to lament and to pray for vindication, for the righting of all wrongs, for the fulfillment of all God's promises. Evil continues to reign in this world, but not for long, church, take heart. The season of Advent reminds us, <clears throat> excuse me, that just as God's people have always been a people who have waited for the fulfillment of God's promises, so we also continue to wait, but His promises will not tarry long. The day is coming soon when all injustice, when all wickedness, when all evil, when suffering itself will be no more. The day is coming soon when Christ returns. Even so, Lord Jesus, come soon and help us to be faithful and cling to you and fix our eyes on you until you come. Amen.